And we are going to be in Matthew chapter 18. So if you would take your Bible. Uh, man, I thank you so much. It's been a sweet time already. Hey, I just want to say one thing, too, about the uh, financial presentation that our elders did. Uh, I just, I love the fact that they all came up and they all had something they wanted to say, something they wanted to share. And I'm very, very grateful for that. And I know a lot of people might say something like, well, <clears throat> man, we have this huge balance, you know, uh, why are we concerned about this? I, I have to tell you, back in 2019, when our balance was, you know, down there where it was, that was incredibly stressful all the time. And that had been going on for a couple of years. And, and I appreciated what I think, I don't remember who it was, but a couple of them alluded to this, that man, we just don't want to be back there again. We put some safeguards in place to try to make sure we're not back at that place. And so I know some people look at that cash balance. I mean, we have so much cash. Well, that cash is dedicated for certain things and other things like that. But at the same time, we just don't want to be back where we were before because it just paralyzes us. And so for us to have freedom, uh, we need to have our, our, uh, our financial house more solid, more stable. And so uh, Craig alluded to that. We're going to start talking about that. Our Thanksgiving season is coming up. We'll be talking about that some more. But I just wanted to kind of pass that on to you today. I really appreciate uh, just the integrity that our, our men use when they talk about these kinds of things. Matthew chapter 18, though, is uh, really, really important because this is the place in our Bible where you see Jesus really speak to you and me about our relationships with other people. You see, Jesus' disciples were having an argument argument. Like who's the greatest among us, right? And Jesus takes a moment to teach them. There's this kind of long protracted teaching and it's a teaching on true greatness. And he says, greatness as God sees it, gentlemen, it's going to be reflected in your relationships. And so this is so, so key for us today. In great relationships, that's something all of us wish that we had, whether it's our family, whether it's our friends, whether it's our church, relationships that are strong, we want those. Relationships that can stand the test of time and also relationships that can withstand the storms of life. Have you guys been watching uh, the cleanup from Hurricane Ian? Uh, it's been incredible, hasn't it? And have you ever noticed this? That have been boats and you know, houses are destroyed and all those things. But those palm trees are still standing up when the hurricane's over. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. It's pretty incredible. So I had to find out, like, why is that? And it turns out, first of all, palm trees are very elastic. They can bend over almost 45 degrees before the trunk will snap because of the way their insides are put together. But also it's a very wet and fibrous material there inside there. But what really keeps them up is, you know, that they will bend, but they won't break. But what really keeps them standing is their roots. You know, the trees that we're accustomed to out here in Texas, they have a deep, deep tap root, and then a few other roots around that. Uh, palm trees have what are called spaghetti roots, and there are these long tendrils that go out, and they kind of go up under the ground, and they make this massive ball underneath that pine, uh, that palm tree, and that ball sinks down into the sand. And you think about that too. You know, sand is so loose, but yet this ball of roots grabs a bunch of sand, and it makes this big, like almost like a, almost like a massive bowling ball underneath that tree, and that anchors that tree into the beach. And there's almost nothing that can dig those roots up out of the ground, even hurricane force winds. I want you to think about this today. It is inevitable in your family, in your friends, in your church relationships, with people we love and we care about, storms will come. 
People will do things that are wrong, hurtful, painful, costly, sinful. And our relationships will be hurt or stressed, all right, because of that. But ask this question, are they going to bend or are they going to break? What do we do? How do we respond when that happens? You see, I don't know about you, but kind of the way I was raised, you know, in my home growing up, man, if someone hurts you or someone does something wrong, someone criticizes you, man, it's deuces, right? You just brush them off and you're like, I don't need them and I don't want them around. You have no more to do with them. But think about this. If we brush off everyone we care about, whoever hurts us at the end of a few years, we'll have nobody left. Nobody left. And you may know somebody like this. They've brushed off everybody that's ever hurt them, and now they're very alone. Is it possible to have relationships that are able to take enormous stress, that bend but don't break? I want to give you a, a principle today that has made a huge difference in my life. I am so grateful that someone, when I was in my 20s, sat me down, showed me this principle in Matthew chapter 18, and really uh, made me live by it, my first pastor, and it has made all the difference in my life. And I really want to pass this on to you. So our title today is Deep-Rooted Relationships. Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to start out at verse number 12, okay? Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. And Jesus says this, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now, when you look at this context, it's been a couple weeks since we talked about this, but the little ones Jesus is speaking of are young disciples, new Christians, young believers, just pretty much everybody in the life of the church. And he's telling this parable to communicate to you and me the incredible value, the enormous value that God places on everyone in the flock. The Lord has made such an enormous investment in all of us. And we talked about this today during the communion. It's impossible to measure. First Peter chapter 1, Peter said, you were ransomed. All right, rescued uh, from slavery, not with something that might perish like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this shepherd in this parable is a picture of the love for you and for me that the Lord has for us as individuals. And as a church, we have a duty, a responsibility to express this same kind of love for other believers in the family. And you notice what happens here. The sheep wanders away from the flock. This is a metaphor for the person who wanders away from the church. They've wandered from God. And that one sheep that's left the 99 is in great danger because they're now vulnerable and weak. And if a person wanders from the church, they wander from the truth. They wander from God. And Jesus is saying they are in danger because they are vulnerable and weak. And I want you to think about this for a moment. If you look around the church this morning, who's not here? Who's not here with us? And ladies and gentlemen, can I just tell you, as I've been studying this passage this week, I have been so challenged. You know, like, am I doing this well? 
You know, I was like, you know, I'm a pastor. Sure, I did. No, no, no. I'm really asking myself, do I do this well? James chapter 5, James says, If someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death. Could the stakes be any higher? And I know this is kind of a worn out illustration, but I just thought, you know, it's still pretty powerful. You know, you think about this, you think about a church, think about a family. If you're out there by yourself, like one stick, very easily broken, okay? Very easily broken. But what if it's a family or a church, five or six bound together, all right? Is it easily broken? No. And I'm a beast, I mean, really. And so, I mean, I can't do it, all right? So think about that. The shepherd leaves the 99 to pursue the one. And the heart of Almighty God is always, always bent toward restoration, reconciliation. Ezekiel chapter 34, it's a beautiful passage about shepherds. The Lord says this about himself, I will look for those that are lost and I'll bring back those that wander off bandage those that are hurt and heal those who are sick. And so when someone that Jesus cares about is wandering away, we have to find God's passion for that person. And so Jesus is saying, God is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And some might object a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, you're talking about you know, them sinning and wandering off. We're not supposed to, to judge others. Absolutely, we should be humble. We should be gentle. But we do have a responsibility to one another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, It is not my business to judge those who are outside the church. God will judge them. But you must judge the people who are inside the church. If there's someone in the family of God who has a pattern of sin in their life that is public and persistent and unrepentant, then God tells us we need to go to them, all right? Paul said in uh, Galatians chapter 6, if someone wanders away, go to him and restore him gently. But here's where it gets kind of hard. Because, yeah, we can all say, you know, well, you know, I know a brother or a sister who's, who's sinning and, you know, and they're wandering away from the truth or wandering away from God. And they're, they're kind of, you know, you know, sinning in a general way. But what happens when someone sins against you? Then it gets hard. Then it gets tough. You see, all of us have somebody here, to, all of us here today have somebody in our lives that just the mention of their name makes your blood boil. If I'm being honest, I have a list of about six people, okay? <laughs> and it's someone perhaps that hurt you, betrayed you, cast you aside, or what it is for me is when someone hurts somebody in my family. Oh, I have a hard time with that. I'm just being honest with you. Someone might have treated you unfairly. Someone might have stolen from you in a business venture. Someone might have cheated you. Someone may have harshly criticized you unfairly. And you might not care so much, except this is someone you care about. And everyone that you and I care about is going to hurt us, fail us, disappoint us, or sin against us. I tell this to the staff all the time. I'm going to do my very best to be a good leader, but I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down at some point. 
And here's what happens, is that we want justice. We want to make it right, you know? Put that in air quotes, right? And we're going to make it right. But have you ever thought about this so often? Why is it that when we try to make things right, that everything goes so wrong? I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The criticism, the gossip, the retribution. You see, in relationships, it's inevitable that someone is going to sin against you. People will either intentionally or unintentionally hurt you. They'll hurt your spouse. They'll hurt one of your children. And what do you do when that time comes? What is the best, what is the blessed thing to do? It's precisely what Jesus is teaching his disciples in the second half of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus gives us a four-step process. When someone sins against you, this is what you do in the family of God. And a simple four-step plan was taught to me, and I'm so, so grateful. Look at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I know many of us are looking at that going, wow, that is, that is tough. And I want to tell you today that this is a process that we follow. You know, as elders, you know, if I, if I don't follow this process, I get, I get reprimanded. You know, as on the elder board, if one of our elders doesn't follow this process in a personal conflict, uh, we get censured. And as a staff person, this is the bar that we set for our staff. And if somebody in our staff doesn't follow this process, get reprimanded. This is, this, this is important. This is so, so vital to the health of the body of Christ. And so Jesus says, first of all, step one, go to that person who sinned against you just between the two of you. Now, I want you to look at that word sins for a moment, okay? This is not someone who, like, ignores our preferences or kind of hurts our feelings, all right? This is when, on those occasions when someone sins against you, and this is a key, no one, and I repeat, no one needs to know about that. It needs to stay between the two of you. And this mindset flies in the face of our contemporary grievance culture, which is so destructive, Today, if someone wounds you or cheats you or hurts you or criticizes you, you let as many people as possible know. You go tell the people in the break room at work, the hallways at church, you put a rant on social media, you know, you do something like that. And ladies and gentlemen, in the body of Christ, this ought not be. We should never do something like that. Jesus sets the bar high. He says, don't tell anyone else. The Dutch have a saying, four eyeballs in the room. That's it, <laughs> okay? That's all, just the two of you. Anything less than this is gossip and rumors. And rumors are to relationships what cancer is to the body. It spreads, it grows, it cripples, and it kills. Proverbs 16, 28 says, a perverse person spreads 
Dissension and a gossip separates the closest of friends. This is not a small issue. Do you know in the book of Proverbs, gossip is mentioned six times? Money is mentioned three times in the book of Proverbs. This is a big, big deal. Your relationships matter more than your money. And I wish I could impress on everyone here the destructive power of gossip and rumor mongering. I've seen it split families and churches more times than I care to remember. But I want you to see the hopeful word that Jesus shares here when he says, if he listens to you, you have won. You've won your brother over. You have won. In your relationships, you want to win. And what's the winning strategy? Go to him just or her just between the two of you. That's the winning strategy. Anything less than that, gossip and rumor, those are for losers. Those people who want to lose relationships, those things happen. And so you want to win someone back. The goal here is always restoration, restoration. But what if that doesn't work? Number two, Jesus says, if they refuse to listen, you need to ask a couple of mature believers to help you out. Look at verse 16. Every matter has to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And I know this sounds kind of extreme, but it's because in our current culture, we are so far off course. All of our politics, all of our journalism, or what we call journalism, it's not, but it's all built around gossip and rumor. I heard somebody say, one person told me, no, no. I tell you, if I was the president of the United States in that press room, I would put this verse up there. I really would. All right, we are not going to listen to anything. It has no credibility unless we have two or three witnesses because anything else is just gossip and rumor. It's tearing this country apart. And Jesus did not just create this plan out of thin air. This is coming from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Look at this, Deuteronomy 19.15. Moses wrote this down in the law. One witness cannot establish any sin against a person, whatever that person has done. Every, every testimony, two or three witnesses. Again, the primary motivation here is always restoration. The sheep has wandered off. We want to bring the sheep back to the flock. And if being approached by one person doesn't bring about repentance and sorrow for sin, perhaps two or three people, perhaps that's going to hit home. The person is wrong might say to themselves, man, I, I need to examine myself, you know, my actions, my beliefs. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And if she or he or she listens and they repent, then that's the end of it. God forgives, we forgive. God forgets, we forget. But if someone in the family of God you know, sticks their heels in the ground and says, no, I ain't moving. I didn't do anything wrong. And it's clear that they did. What if the person who is clearly doing and believing things that are harmful to the body stays? They refuse to either to neither stop what they are doing or leave the church. What then? You see, anytime someone is coddling a sin in their life, there's always a false belief behind that sin. And the danger is that a false belief system 
can begin to spread into the life of the church. Like Paul said into the Corinthians, it's like yeast in the dough. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said the same thing. He told his disciples, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What is that? It's their false teaching, he said. Don't let that false teaching spread, those bad ideas. Which brings us to step three. If they refuse to listen, Jesus says, you got to get the church involved. You see that in verse 17. Again, the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to win a brother or a sister back. Can I, I, just, I cannot say that enough. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to win a brother or sister back. As you read Matthew 18, you see three components, three disciplines of genuine community. First of all, there's that, that self-discipline where Jesus said in the earlier part of the chapter, don't ever cause one of these little ones to stumble. You know, you watch yourself, you watch your words, your actions, make sure you don't cause a little one to stumble. But then there's the mutual discipline of if someone sins against you, you go to them. Just the two of you, it's mutual discipline. And that person should receive that here in the church. We should receive it that way. But then there's the church discipline. If they refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. And ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, this is an essential ministry in the family of God. It's taught here by Jesus. It's also taught in four other places in your New Testament. It's a big theme in your New Testament. For example, Titus chapter 3, Paul told Titus, give at least two warnings straight from Jesus, right? Give at least two warnings to those who cause divisions and then have nothing more to do with them. Now, in our case, what would you do? You would come to your elders in your church say, hey, can I get you guys to help me? Here's my situation. Someone has sinned against me. I've gone to them. I've taken a friend with me. I'm getting nowhere. Let us hear it. Let's talk about it. And then we say, okay, here's the next step. Number four, what if the person digs in their heels and says, I'm still not wrong? The church has a responsibility to discipline the offender. Take no joy in saying that at all. You know, we aren't too fond of the word discipline in our current culture. The word disciple means someone who is disciplined. And we don't like discipline. Discipline is painful, but there's no such thing as a disciple who's unwilling to be disciplined. Discipline is painful. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us for our good. Sometimes the church has to be the instrument that God uses to bring about discipline. It says, no, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, there will be a day, there will be a day that it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for the people who are trained by it. You see, discipline is essential to our lives individually. We know that. It's essential to family life. We know that. And it's essential in the family of God. You know, in a healthy family, families will discipline one another from time to time for their good. Spouses confront spouses. Children confront uh, parents, confront children. Siblings confront siblings. And it's all done out of love. You know, when my grandfather died, this was years ago, 
My dad told me a story about my grandfather that I had never heard. And I wish I would have known this when I was a kid. I would have respected him a lot more. My, dad, my granddad's name was Taylor, Taylor Sharp. And he was the oldest of four brothers. And one of his little brothers was named Joe. And he married a sweet girl named Bonnie. And they hadn't been married very long when Joe and Bonnie got in a fight. And Joe slapped Bonnie. And when my granddad, Taylor, heard my grandmother said he got in his truck, he went over to Joe's home and, quote, beat the tar out of him, <laughs> all right? <laughs> now, beating the tar out of someone is a phrase that dates back to the 1700s. Tar is short for tarnation, which is a polite way of, uh, which was a short for darnation, which was a polite way of saying damnation. So I'm going to beat the damnation out of you is what it means, all right? You're beating the devil out of somebody, and you beat that person sufficiently to return them to the path of righteousness, which is exactly what my grandfather did when he beat the tar out of Joe because he and Bonnie were married for 60 years. He had a very he had a great marriage, beautiful family, successful business, et cetera, et cetera, and he and my grandfather were very close until the day he died. Look at verse 17. When Jesus says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, I mean, this is escalated up to the point, it's even the church, you have to treat him as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, that does not mean cut off all contact. Because you notice Jesus, he hung out with tax collectors, and he was a friend of sinners. But he's saying you have to give that person a new status in the body of Christ. You see, this person is not allowing the Spirit of God to work in their life. And they've, they've, they've got an idea or a belief that they've hardened into their minds. And now they have to be thought of as someone who does not have the Spirit. They're walking exclusively in the flesh. That's why Jude says in Jude 119, these are the people who divide you. They are those who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. You see, that's the, that's the real danger is division. When people are acting as if they don't have the Spirit of God or are just uh, you know, left you know, to, to roam free. And I got to tell you, I have some great friendships with people who I know don't have the Spirit of God. All of us should. All of us should have relationships like that. <laughs> But I treat those relationships differently than I do my relationship with most of you whom I know do have the Spirit of God. I intentionally limit the influence those people have in my life when they don't have the Spirit of God. I, I limit their influence. I enjoy their company, but I don't go ask their advice. You know, I don't allow people without the Spirit of God to, to speak into my life. You know, like in, in a small group setting, and, you know, like, uh, you know, rooted home groups, things like that. I wouldn't necessarily do that. And the third one is I don't allow people who don't have the Spirit of God to have a place of leadership or influence in the life of the church. Can't be. And that's why Jesus says in verse 18, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I want to finish up with this. I want you to see this quote from a great theologian named William Hendrickson. He said this. See, there are certain broad principles clearly stated in Scripture 
which summarize the whole of God's will for man's life. In other words, don't get caught up in the minutia and preferences and opinions, but we know what general morality is. It is the privilege and the duty of the church to set forth these principles to demand its members strive with the help of God's spirit to apply them to their everyday living. It is the duty of the church to bind, that is, forbid the violation of these principles and to loose, that is, permit whatever is in harmony with them. I know it's not easy to have the hard talk, to call someone up in your family circle, your friend circle, your church circle and say, we need to talk. But Jesus did say, just between the two of you. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I really can't say this often enough or well enough. Just between the two of you. Like that old Dutch saying, four eyeballs in the room. So, so key. And you might be looking at this saying, Les, that's a lot of effort. Yes. Yes, it is. And the body of Christ is so precious, so valuable so important it's worth every moment it's worth every bit of trouble your relationships especially in your church are worth it you know your biological family is going to last your lifetime on earth your spiritual family will go on with you into eternity which i think is why paul says things like this all through his letters ephesians 4 always be humble and gentle be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love and make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Hmm. Let's pray. If you would just bow your heads with me for a moment. Father, we love you so much today. And Lord, I just thank you so much for my church family and how much they've meant to me for so long. And Father, those times that come when we are so tempted, Lord, to, to take the shortcut, to take the easy road. Lord, I just pray that you would put it in our heart, Lord, to be like that shepherd who seeks the one. I just pray, Father, you give us your passion for that person, for that relationship, Lord, just to hold this church together, to keep ourselves united in the spirit, binding ourselves together with peace. I just pray, Jesus, that you would just show us more and more how to do this. And Father, I just pray for that person who's here today who's struggling mightily because a relationship that they care about so much is, is being battered by a storm. I just pray, Jesus, that you would just give them wisdom today, Father, just knowing what it means to be united in spirit. Show them how to respond today. We love you today, Jesus. Amen. Amen.